Okay, welcome back everybody. It's just to give you an idea, it's July for us, July 2020 that we're recording this. We know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're currently still all separate, all still, uh, well, we're in lockdown kind of very, very tightly still in Wales. Our guests got slightly more relaxed circumstances, but it was probably best that we introduce our guest first of all. Welcome to Kat Kirkland from the Holocaust Education Trust. She's education officer with a a very specific responsibility for teacher training. Kat, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. (laughs) It's really good to have you. Just tell us where are you? Uh, where are you joining us from at the moment, and uh, how how have things been working in the HET under lockdown circumstances? Um, so I'm at home in Reading at the moment. Our office is in Westminster, um, but is closed and has been since March. Um, so we are all working from home, uh, which has been incredibly interesting. One of the things I found personally interesting is how quickly it feels quite normal and how quickly we all seem to get used to this. Um, But it has been a challenge. Um, A lot of our work at the Holocaust Educational Trust is face-to-face. So our our key programmes involve, on our Lessons from Auschwitz project, taking students and teachers to locations in Poland, which of course we can't reach at the moment. We have an outreach programme arranging for survivors to go into schools. And of course, the schools haven't got pupils in them for much of the time. And our survivors can't be, we can't invite them to travel. And then the teacher training programme, we ordinarily into universities or schools delivering seminars and workshops or, or taking residential courses and we, we can't do those either but one of the things that has been really interesting is how much of our work we can do online so we've all been incredibly busy which is it surprised me to begin with because without participants in front of us it felt to begin with like we wouldn't have a huge amount to do but we've been busy putting our programs online arranging in the teacher training program to have online seminars and virtual teacher study seminars so it's been fascinating to see how much of our work we can do virtually of course we miss the face-to-face interaction not just with our participants but also of course with our colleagues. So Kat we've brought you in to this episode because we wanted to explore something I think that challenges everybody in the teaching profession but particularly our main audience of kind of student teachers early career teachers and that is the teaching of sensitive and difficult subjects and I guess at the moment we could name any number of sensitive and difficult subjects which are very topical and in the news but in some respects they certainly don't get bigger than the holocaust and you have a very well established kind of uh, network of support and resources to help teachers understand how we actually go about teaching something that is really really difficult to talk about and explore. Yes, so we have, uh, so our aim is to educate young people from every background about the Holocaust and the important lessons to be learned for today. So an important part of of my work in in teacher training is to share our teaching materials and to empower teachers to teach about this, this incredibly challenging topic in a useful way. So we provide um, schemes of work and we also provide teacher guides that help teachers to consider the most effective ways to to tackle what is an incredibly complex piece of history. But to tackle it through thinking about questions that relate not just to history, but also the use of literature and art and drama. And by using all of those different curricular approaches we think you can as teachers explore these topics the most effectively 
And we were very, very lucky back in February of this year to have a repeat visit from you, actually. There's quite an established relationship that you've got with our teacher training institution at Cardiff Met. But you came in back in February and delivered an absolutely fantastic lead lecture. I, I I think you could probably hear a pin drop in the bits where you were explaining, but it was actually very interactive um, in in your in terms of your pedagogical style. But it, it was it was great because that then kind of set the stage for some work that they did later on that week um, in a cross curricular way, and um, that you were able to return to us and have a look at the end of the week. So I just wanted to ask first of all, just thinking about your lead lecture, how would you describe your pedagogical approach when you're dealing with a room of 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 trainee teachers? I think we have to perceive our trainee teachers and all teachers, in fact, as as learners and as practitioners. So if um, I'm meeting a group of people for the first time, I have to consider what they need to know in terms of their subject knowledge to be able to teach about the Holocaust effectively, but also to think about pedagogy and how they convey that really challenging information to their students. And so what I tried to do in the introductory lecture was to combine both of those considerations, what it is that we would want teachers to know about the topic and what we would want them to feel empowered to do when they were in the classroom. And the way that I found it most useful to do that is by talking about our teaching materials, by modelling them, but also deconstructing them. So asking the teachers and the trainees to engage in the activities, presenting them as we would do to the students, but then taking a step back once they've done the activity and ask them, well, what did you just do? How might you do this with your classroom? Why do you think we asked you this question and not this question? So, for example, when um, we teach about the Holocaust, we think it's really important to teach first about pre-war Jewish life. It's a a core principle that we follow that we should never go straight into a discussion of the Holocaust um, without looking at the, the the lives of the people who were affected by it. And so we have a a, a resource on a scheme of work, which is called Pre-War Jewish Life, and is a series of photographs, um, which teachers can print out, and there's information on the back of them that tells the students a little bit about what's on the photograph. And it comes with a teacher guide, which tells the teachers that little bit more information than their students might necessarily need to know, but uh, empowers the teachers again to answer their questions. And we give out the photographs and we ask the, the teachers to, to see what they can spot in the photographs and what they what they might do with them in the classroom. And when the teachers have had that conversation with each other in small groups, we then look at some of the photographs together and we pick out some of the key themes that uh, we think the students might recognise. For example, the fact that in most cases, although they're photographs of Jewish people, you can't necessarily recognise that from what the, the individuals in the photographs are doing or wearing. And we highlight that with the teachers and encourage them to think about how that, they'd raise that with their students. Now, a really unfortunate way of phrasing that question is, well, yeah, how, how can you can you tell that these people are Jewish? or or, or, um, which of these people look Jewish? uh, And the latter of those two questions, the second of those two questions is really problematic because it suggests that you can spot a Jewish person by looking at them. So rather than asking that question, we model the way that we would want to frame that question to the trainees. So we say to them, so just look at your photographs. Um, Can you see any photographs where somebody uh, is demonstrably Jewish or we can tell that they are Jewish by what they're doing or what they're wearing? And we ask that question and we receive the answers and then we sort of stop and say, OK, well, can anybody tell me which question I deliberately didn't ask and why I didn't ask it? 
And generally, somebody in the in the group, and this certainly happened at the session at Cardiff Met, will say, oh, you're not asking us to, to spot the Jewish people. You're not saying what do Jewish people look like. And we unpick that further, and that leads us into a discussion of stereotyping and um, preconceptions. And so we're using the teaching resource to convey information to the teachers. But at different points, we stop after having modelled an activity or a, or a dialogue. And then we say, so what did we do there? And I think really key is that um, as, trainer, as trainers, we, we can't just model an activity and expect a trainee to understand all the nuances of what we've done. It's only really modeling if we deconstruct as well. So we lead a session and then we ask the teachers to take part in that. And then we deconstruct what we've done because the principles informing the way that we've just delivered that session have implications for how they might deliver later sessions and, and highlight the principles that we have embedded in all of our teaching. So my approach uh, in the session at Cardiff Mess is re was really similar to how I'd approach that sort of activity generally, which is to model, but also to deconstruct. And by modelling, we can share some of that key information, but by deconstructing, we can have the pedagogical discussions that we need to have as well. Thanks, Kat. It's, it's just so much, so so much kind of rich description in there that I, I'd like to, to follow up on. But the, I think the thing that seems to be underscoring all of your pedagogical approaches with our student teachers is also kind of linked back to those kind of key guiding principles that come through in all of your resources and that are slightly tweaked depending on the audience. So you've got a drama pack, which I'm particularly interested in as a, as a drama practitioner myself, which has got some of the kind of the, the core things that run across all of your resources, but then some very specific ones that are subject specific for drama. So I wonder if you could just give us an insight into, you know, some of the really fundamental um, principles that come through that our listeners perhaps might have worries or concerns about or might not know um, would be useful to them to hear. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a couple which immediately spring to mind. I mean, all of our work is informed by the principles which were considered by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, who released recommendations for teaching and learning about the Holocaust, which they reviewed and re-released at the end of last year. So our teacher guides have an earlier version of those, which we've amended for a very specific UK context. But two particular principles, I think, run through, um, as you've said, um, our drama guide, but also all of our other work. And the first First is about the use of empathy. Now, I used to be a history teacher and a really classic activity to do, whatever the topic would be to ask the students to imagine that they were um, a character from a period that we're studying or even a very specific individual and to try to present the world through their eyes. So this might be um, a medieval knight or it might be a child working in a factory in the 19th century. And by asking them to look at sources and, and imagine that they were in that world, I had previously hoped that that would enable them to explore those histories in more meaningful terms. But when we think about empathy in terms of teaching about the Holocaust, where we reach a really problematic area because, of course, thankfully, most of our students could never imagine the circumstances in which people were forced to live during the Holocaust or as refugees. And so we don't want to ask them to do the impossible. But similarly, we know in our classrooms there will be some children who do come from a background that is challenging, that may be related to being um, a refugee, for example. And we don't want to ask them to produce a creative piece of writing that, that taps into what might be their earlier trauma. And so a principle which guides a lot of our work is to avoid empathy activities. And I think that has particular significance when it comes to drama, that we're not asking students to imagine that they are somebody else um, and to create a world on their behalf. 
um, because we know that most students won't be able to do so and those who can shouldn't be asked to. So one really key principle is, is to not ask people to, to empathise. But of course, what we can do, and our drama guide gives us really clear guidance on how we can do this, is we can use source material and scripts and original drama and perform that or interpret it, which means that rather than having to ask the students to imagine that they are somebody else, which they can't do, they can speak on behalf of somebody who had written down their thoughts and we can ask them to engage with source material. A second um, really key principle, and, and this relates perhaps a little to drama, but also to our art guide, is on the, the type of images which we share with our students and with any learners, really. So one key principle that we have in all of our work is that we don't share atrocity images. Um, we think there's all sorts of reasons why we should avoid using these in our teaching. They relate to the fact that some students will have trauma responses to looking at graphic imagery. Um, much of the graphic imagery related to the Holocaust was perpetrated to focus so it's taken as trophy photographs for example and we don't want to share those because that's tapping into the the agenda of the nazis and their collaborators so instead of using um, graphic images our art guide provides again artwork which was produced at the time by victims and survivors of the Holocaust, sharing the, the, their perceptions of the world as they saw it. And again, we can ask our students to interpret those depictions. And so we're giving voice or, um, to the survivors and the victims, but allowing our students to engage with art and images, which will help them to understand what happened, but won't be taking them into spaces where they're seeing graphic images, which they, uh, which we don't think they should be using in a classroom. One of the things that's interested me more and more as I think about these sensitive subjects, and, and this is, I guess, a question that exists on many, many levels, is is the question of language. And I know that this project with the students kind of grew out of an idea we had about uh, talking about dystopia more widely. And part of that conversation we had was was this idea that, uh, you know, one of the things that we hear about often in, in these dystopian situations in fictional reality is the kind of co-opting of language to normalise things and to kind of put a particular point of view across in a way that's perhaps quite subtle and quite difficult to see. But also on the subject of language, you know, people are very frightened of using the wrong words when describing things. I think that possibly is what trips teachers up because we need to be able to speak fluently to our pupils. How do we walk that line between not saying something that's really wrong or really offensive, but equally not becoming so paralysed with fear of opening our mouths that we just don't get anywhere or anything explored? I, I think it's a, a, a great question. And I think there's all sorts of examples of language changing, particularly when we talk about the Holocaust and us having particular considerations about which words we choose to use and, and why not. So, for example, the Holocaust is problematic in itself. Um, many people, particularly Jewish people, don't like it as a term to describe what happened because um, it has connotations of sacrifice and burning. And the last way that we would want to interpret the Holocaust is an act of sacrifice because that suggests that people had a choice to be killed or that there was some greater outcome, some greater good that came out of the Holocaust, neither of which I think would be true. And so even the very word we use in discussions of these events is in itself problematic. There's other terms as well that we avoid using or we're very careful with using the phrase the final solution, for example, which often is, is used to describe the Holocaust is a, a, a Nazi phrase. And it was used to suggest that the Jewish people were a problem that needed to be solved, an issue that needed resolution. And we don't, again, don't want to tap into 
or use that language because we are then almost supporting through our words a Nazi agenda. So there are all sorts of words which we uh, could problematize and, and, and words which we don't use or we use inverted commas because they are from Nazi vocabulary. And then there's others which we no longer use in the same way for other reasons. So, for example, we often talk about other victim groups who are persecuted by the Nazis and we may want to use the term gypsy, but for many that's also an inappropriate term. And so when we use the term gypsy at the trust, we put it in inverted commas to show it's, it's common language but not something that we would like to to continue to use and then we use the terms Roma and Sinti to convey that we're talking about specific ethnic groups who may not want to be known as gypsies. And so we, we, in all of our work, we are very, very cautious with our language. And I think you're absolutely right to, to highlight that for, for many people, perhaps particularly teachers, that the, the fear of using that terminology um, and using it incorrectly can be yeah, a little paralyzing. I, I, um, my, yeah, because of the nature of my work, I'd suggest that attending training events, reading our teacher guides, of course, can help to give teachers the words to use as well though we we have to consider the the classroom climate and ensuring that there is a space for reflection and space to ask questions uh, not just at the beginning of the topic and at the end but but all the way through and allowing pupils to ask questions and and by allowing them to ask questions um, we are uh, in, in, uh, empowering our students to, to, to say things very tentatively. And even if they are using words which we as teachers may find challenging, but using them in well-intentioned ways, we can work with the students to help them to phrase things more sensitively. And so, for example, um, I know that uh, that many people that I've worked with, and 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 I, I, I feel this to my uh, to a degree myself. I don't particularly like the term Jews or the Jews to be used when talking about the Holocaust. I feel it's a little bit dehumanising, and I would prefer to use the phrase Jewish people. And often. Um, I hear students and teachers use the phrase Jews and it may feel unsettling to me, but when I listen to the context of what they're saying, the words become less significant than the phrasing or the, or the point that they're trying to make. And so I think if we can now a safe space where people can raise questions and, and use words, and if we're, if we're not yet in agreement about how those words could be shared, but, but they are shared through a question, there's a way to have a dialogue where we can reach um, a level of comfort with the words that we're all using. So I think it really comes back to this, this sort of safe space, both in a teacher training session and then in the classroom, where there is the space for reflection and where teachers and students can ask questions which are well-intentioned. And if their language isn't quite right, they'll feel that they'll gently be guided towards more appropriate language without the nature of what they're saying actually being challenged. Because I suppose it's a very valid avenue of learning to look into why those language choices were very, mm. very uh, deliberately used in order to have that dehumanizing effect yeah. or to have that sort of flipping effect of making something positive when it wasn't because that's really really topical right now mm. yes i mean we do a lot in primary schools where we don't teach about the Holocaust itself, but we do teach about the kinder transport and experiences of being a refugee. And one of the things that I think is really great about that set of resources is that they allow pupils to explore the term refugee through the story of an individual called Vera. And they become perhaps a little more confident in using the term refugee. And maybe when they hear it outside of those lessons, 
perhaps in a in a more negative way they'll have had an opportunity of, he- of hearing it in a more personal more positive way and there'll be other words too where the students might be familiar with them from outside of their lessons but when they hear about them inside the lesson they might understand a little bit more about the, what they mean and, and you know in um, the context of today we know that there are there is still anti-semitism in our society if students are hearing the phrase jew or jewish person outside of school it may it may possibly be in a negative way um, if they hear it inside the classroom in a more positive sense or a more humanized sense that might allow them to then be a, a little bit more critical when they hear anti-jewish messages outside um, I, I'm really glad that you mentioned the uh, primary phase there, Kat, as well, because I'm, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners from the primary phase will be wondering, you know, how I noticed that you've got a teacher guide that starts at key stage two. What sort of age would you advocate kind of starting to, to look at this topic? Our primary guide is really designed for the very end of primary school. We think that if students can go into secondary school really um, knowledgeable about Jewish culture and history and traditions with some sense that Jewish people were persecuted in Nazi Germany and that some um, chose or were forced to become refugees, then that can be really useful substantive knowledge that they can pick up in secondary school when they learn about the Holocaust itself. So our scheme of work is designed with, with, with that in mind, but also with a recognition that these stories are worth exploring for the students themselves at the age of 10 or 11. So we think that those topics, the, um, what it means to be Jewish before the Second World War, the persecution of Jewish people in Nazi Germany, and the experiences of children on the kinder transport on those who made the kinder transport uh, possible are all really useful topics for students to discuss in the primary school. And our hope in our, is that the students will then progress with those ideas into the secondary school and discuss the Holocaust itself. So our principle is that we don't think that wartime persecution and murder is appropriate for discussion in the primary school, but that there are elements of the experiences of Jewish people before the war that can be really usefully explored. And essentially what we do in our scheme of work is we establish with primary school pupils, again, at the very end of primary school, we'd hope, what it meant to be Jewish before the Second World War and how Jewish people were persecuted under the Nazis. But then we take our story away from Central Europe and we bring it to the UK through the story of Vera, who was a child refugee who came over on the kinder transport. And so our story moves away from occupied Europe and moves into the UK to a place of, of, of relative safety and explores the experience of making that journey and then explores the choices made by some of the people who made that journey possible. So people like Sir Nicholas Winton and others who were working with him to make the kinder transport in Vera's case from Prague a possibility. Thank you, Kat. S- something that um, struck us both um, in the work that is going on and you've put out uh, on on the uh, website in terms of resources was your advocation of cr- cross-curricular approaches just quoting from your resource for a cross-curricular scheme of work it says about learning about the holocaust encourages students to confront fundamental questions which cut across many academic disciplines. This was obviously very pertinent to us in Wales as we move towards a much more cross-curricular curriculum and I just wondered if you could give us a few more of your your thoughts on this and the benefits and maybe the challenges to working in a cross-curricular way when looking at the Holocaust. Yeah, so the the great benefit is that it allows teachers to teach aspects of the Holocaust which are part of their curriculum 
and hopefully allows them to play to their own strengths. So again, I used to be a history teacher. Um, I had some understanding of Judaism from my own background, but not a huge amount. And yet um, I would teach about the Holocaust and be talking about Jewish people. I would have really appreciated knowing that the students came with some knowledge of who the Jewish people of Europe were before the war. And if they could gain that understanding of what it meant to be Jewish in their RE curriculum, and I knew that they were securing those understandings, then when I picked up the stories in history, we, we could have really meaningful conversations about individual stories. And I think there's all sorts of examples of exactly that approach. And similarly, my colleagues in the RE department who may want to teach later on in the school about issues around questions of, of suffering um, and even about the, the, the nature of God may want to do so by exploring questions around the Holocaust, but would probably rather do that and be more, um, more confident in doing that from a theological perspective rather than a historical one. So I would like my students to have that understanding of the Holocaust from a history perspective before they have those theological discussions and leave the theological discussions to my RE colleagues who are much better trained and uh, to, to lead them. And there's all sorts of other examples too. So we know that the Holocaust cannot be understood without understanding it geographically. To, to only understand it and the history of individual countries doesn't allow us to explore with our students the, you know, the, the continental um, scope of the Holocaust or, or the, the fact that what connected the countries in which it took place was the fact that they were all occupied by the Nazis or their collaborators. That's a, a, a geographical issue. That's a geopolitical statement we're making there. And so in order for the students to understand the histories of the Holocaust, they need to understand its geographies as well, which brings in the geography colleagues who I'd really like to be able to, to rely on to, to explore the nature of Europe and the, the implications of, of the changes in Europe that were happening during the Second World War. And then I was, um, as a history teacher, really like to be able to use pieces of testimony in my teaching, but I would hope that they would come in skilled in looking at poetry or, or reading um, political treaties, for example, that, that they, and that they might have taken some of their skills from their English lessons that they could bring into their history lesson and make sense of those, those documents as pieces of literature. And um, so, again, there's all sorts of different opportunities whereby my teaching of, of history would be far better if the students came in with understandings from other subject areas. And similarly, there's a huge amount as a history teacher, I would hope that I would be able to bring to those lessons that when the students then went into other departments again, they would have that security of knowledge that they could then use to answer more challenging theological, philosophical or ethical questions than, than what they were supposed to address in my lessons. I think the greatest challenge though is how difficult it is in some schools for different subjects uh, to speak to each other, for different teachers to engage with each other and for there to be joint planning. There's such a, a huge amount asked of every teacher in every school to deliver their own curriculum and to move their students forward in their learning, but there's not necessarily the space for the dialogue between departments that would really help to make the lessons about the Holocaust in all of these different subjects most effective. And I think a really classic example of what seems to happen in many schools, um, which at the trust we are, we are trying to support teachers with, is that often they'll read a text in English that relates to the Holocaust in some way, way before they learn about the histories of that topic in their history lessons. And, and that the really typical example at the moment is the book The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas 
which lots of students seem to be reading uh, um, at the very start of secondary school, sometimes even in primary school. So they are learning this story that appears to relate to the Holocaust through English and having to make sense of it without the historical knowledge that allows them to see fact from fiction. And so one of the challenges is then that the history teachers are having to, to deal with some misconceptions that the students have picked up from reading this text. And if the history teachers had been able to work with the English teachers, perhaps they'd have found alternative pieces of fiction that were not so problematic, but also working with the teachers in the English department to, to highlight ways in which they can engage with other texts, but in a more useful way. So we've provided guidance for teachers to unpick some of the misconceptions that um, the boy in the striped pyjamas can convey. But what we'd really like is for schools to, and departments to be able to talk to each other so that the lessons about the Holocaust all across the school are taught in a collaborative way with each department able to know what the students are going to learn about in another department and when and how those different ideas might work together to allow the students to have the greater sense of what happened. One of the things that was really noticeable for us when we got you in to do the session was the fact that we were having a session being delivered by an absolute expert in the field, I guess, of teaching the Holocaust. Now, when we're talking in Wales, particularly about working across subjects, one of the first objections that gets raised or one of the first concerns that gets raised is this idea of watering down of kind of levels of rigour or levels of subject discipline. I mean, even in secondary where we have subject specialists, we're all still generalists, I guess, within that subject discipline. And when we did that slightly counterintuitive thing of starting off from a very, very specialist place in order to move across subjects, I think something really special happened there. I mean, to what extent do you think schools need to really think about the importance that, that real kind of experts can bring to the table when trying to create a curriculum that really works? Um, well, I'm, I'm going to pick you up on one thing, which is that you called me an absolute expert. And as much as that's a very kind <laughs> thing to hear on a wet afternoon in, in Reading when I've not been able to see my colleagues for a very long time, I'd also highlight that, that our teacher training programme is informed by our resources, which are informed by all of our other work. And I would never claim to be an expert, and I doubt that my colleagues would either. But everything that I know I've picked up from, from working with other specialists in the field, um, I think that's really important to acknowledge because I wouldn't claim to be an expert on the Holocaust. It's such a vast topic that I don't think anybody can really claim to be expert in it. it it's just too huge. So what I do and what I would encourage teachers to do in order to have high level thinking um, and not watering down the topic, but also to not be overwhelmed by it is by focusing on a few individual stories or individual narratives and become very familiar with the details, the nuances of those, and then gradually build those up. So again, I'll, I'll refer back to our pre-war Jewish life activity because it's filled with photographs of Jewish people whose stories we pick up in a later resource called The Final Solution. And again, we put the phrase The Final Solution in inverted commas on, on all of the materials about that activity. Um, now, it's a series of, I think, 15 different photographs, which we pick up in two lessons at the very start of our teaching and then partway through when we follow the stories through. And I've 
found that um, when I first started to teach with them, I would use maybe four or five contrasting stories. So only really using a third of the uh, of the resources, but knowing those five stories really well. And I would choose ones which were contrasting. So a a photograph to tell the story of a Jewish child from Germany, one from Lithuania, one from Hungary, one from what would become Nazi occupied Poland, and then another one from Prague. And by knowing those five stories, I I was still not an expert. I'm I'm still not an expert. I would become, though, really confident in talking about just those stories. And so I could build a session that didn't water down those histories. What it did instead was making my lesson more manageable for me. And then perhaps the following year, I'd bring in a couple more stories. And then the following year, a couple more until I'd got the 15 stories all fairly, um, yeah, I I would know all of them fairly well and would be able to to tell the stories in different ways and in a different order and make different connections according to the students' responses. So I think in terms of expecting ourselves to be experts in this, that's a, that's a, a, a challenge and it's a, perhaps an unrealistic challenge for, for a piece of history and a topic that has implications for all of these different subjects. But what we can do is not water down what we're doing, but perhaps set ourselves manageable and realistic expectations of, of how many stories we would expect ourselves to know for our students. And so the students themselves are not going to know, or if I go in as, an, as a newly qualified teacher and teach a lesson using just five stories, that there's 10 that I'm leaving for later on in my career but rather if we know just a few of them and tell them in a meaningful way and then build on those in our own subject knowledge more gradually we as teachers won't become overwhelmed with what we don't know but we'll be able to focus on what we do and then we can share those meaningful stories with our students without feeling like we're letting them down because we're not able to tell every story. Thank you so much, Kat. What I love about everything that you deliver is that you're not only giving us insights into, you know, the the sort of content, curriculum content, and obviously the the underpinning principles, but also it's the meta, it's the how, how we do that. And you really do speak with those novice teachers or those, you know, teachers who are new to teaching the Holocaust or sensitive subjects. you know, for the first time. So thank you for that sensitivity and the empathy that you extend to uh, to newcomers to, to this, this area. Um, we've, we've asked you to do a bit of homework for us. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we were wondering if we could go on to some of those slots now. And I wonder if maybe the, something that's great that you, you always do is you're so generous in giving some really kind of clear, practical strategies. And one of our slots is something to try. So I was wondering if you have a, a something to try for our listeners. I do. So something that I would really recommend, I think I only really appreciated years later, is a a tip for people entering the classroom for the first time. So when I first started teaching, I don't think I really made the most of all of the opportunities that I had when I was starting with a whole group of other people brand new to teaching. So I was really lucky. I started in my first school in Wolverhampton with seven other newly qualified teachers. And I really wish I'd made more of the fact that I arrived with a cohort of teachers. I didn't appreciate that until I started at a different school in a middle management position and didn't have that same sort of peer network. So I think my my, my greatest tip for those who are listening who are starting in the classroom for the first time um, in September or later on 
is really make the most of that cohort of teachers who are joining with you because there's all sorts of things that you're going to be empowered to do in your first year that might become more difficult as you move through your career. So try to work out who the new newly qualified teachers are. Befriend them. You will be able to be a really great peer support to each other. But you can be a professional support as well. So try to find times where you can observe each other or team teach together. Even if your subjects appear to be completely unrelated, if you are in a position to be able to work with another colleague and see how they teach and pick up ideas from them and share your ideas with them, then you're going to be able to work much more collaboratively um, all the way through your career because you've seen what happens in other subjects. Um, additionally, um, another opportunity that you have as a newly qualified teacher is you'll often have a reduced timetable, a few more slots here and there, and the temptation will be to use those for marking and planning, which of course you must do. Um, but if you can find time to do things like shadow students to see what they see as they go around the school or to um, shadow if you have a tutor group to spend the day following them around and see what they do for the rest of their day when they're not with you can be really useful for you getting a sense of how schools work and going to parts of the school that you might not otherwise visit. So I think my, my to, to summarise that, I think my, my greatest suggestion is if you are going into, the, into school to work for the very first time, do what you can as a newly qualified teacher to, to reach out to people you're starting with, to make the most of those connections, to, to see them in lessons, invite them into yours, and then also to follow the students when you have that a bit of additional free time, see what the, what the world looks like from their eyes, because that can be really useful for you to, to be able to connect with those students, but also to understand the challenges that they might be facing and the uh, yeah, the nature of their day and, and, and the, the, the ways in which some of their teachers are able to reach out to them and to teach them in ways that you might not have thought of yet. That's really interesting, actually, Kat. That's made me reflect as you were speaking there on the fact that our student teachers on the PGCE, when they come on the programme, they're sort of dropped into a number of kind of pre-made and overlapping networks of uh, people that kind of look after them. And maybe when they're in the middle of that, it's not immediately obvious that we've kind of created that around them and that when they come out of the PGCE and into school, they'll actually have to work to create those themselves. So I guess, yeah, making that point explicit is, is really good. So when you make the transition from PGCE to newly qualified teacher and beyond you have to do that for yourself yeah that's really interesting what about something interesting we, we call it something interesting because that allows it to range across books and various other kinds of media podcasts radio telly and film and it doesn't have to necessarily be education have you got something to recommend to our listeners that they're going to consume um, i have two things fairly typically i'm, I'm, I'm going to go beyond a single answer Bonus. <laughs> so um Obviously, I have to have something which relates to the Holocaust. Um, and so I think the book that I've, um, in, in all the time that I've been working for the Trust that I found most readable, most, um, you know, the, the, for want of a better phrase, a page turner, which is, which is a difficult phrase to use in the, in the context of what we talk about, is Holocaust Landscapes by Tim Cole. And as I was just discussing how we can't understand the Holocaust unless we think about it geographically, um, Tim Cole almost turns that notion on its head by talking about the geographies of the Holocaust as these microsites, so talking about, uh, or writing rather, about the Holocaust in very, very small spaces, um, and spaces we might not associate with the Holocaust. But he does so, again, by telling the stories of individuals. So telling the stories of individuals who are hiding in, in particular places in forests, or individuals whose, whose families were killed in open spaces. 
And so he um, tells the stories of the Holocaust through space um, and location, but he uses these very small microsites to help to tell the, the, the geographies of the Holocaust in a different way. And so I'd recommend reading that because it is very, very readable. It's personal stories told often through testimony and it locates the Holocaust in a variety of places that we may not have considered it taking place in. So that's my first recommendation. Um, my second recommendation is Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. And I honestly can't remember the last time I read a book that has made me think about the world in such a different way. And and it's it's raised all sorts of issues for the way that I that I now see the world, many of which I've missed because I'm quite a tall woman, not 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 hugely so, but above average height. And it's it's made me recognise that that's actually allowed me to, to not to see a lot of the disadvantages which are built into everyday life that, that women have to, to, to manage because they are not considered to be regular shaped or regular heighted um, because most design is based around men. So I'd really recommend that as, a, as an alternative or as an additional read because it's really made me think about the world in a very different way. Great recommendations, Kat. And actually, Invisible Women is sat on my desk. I'm staring at it right now. <laughs> and I haven't, I haven't actually read it yet, but it was recommended by another colleague um, in work. So it's great to hear it being recommended on the podcast as well. And I look forward to, to giving that a read um, and the Tim Pole book as well. Thank you for those two recommendations. So the last question to ask you, um, you kind of touched upon a little bit in your recommendation for students to network um, and the impact that can have significantly on your well-being but looking at yourself now how do you look after your own well-being um so i've actually been using ever since i was a newly qualified teacher um the same approach it's not the only thing i do but i think the most powerful thing i do which is that whatever else i'm doing and i've been a teacher and i've been um a, a freelancer and working very strange hours um and i've been a student working as a as a freelancer as well so i've i've being someone who's often had a lot of work to do based at home, whether it's teaching or studying or preparing freelancing sessions when I was working in museums. And I've always had the same principle, which somebody suggested to me when they were when I was at NQT, um, which is to, to have protected time. And for me, that protective time has always been Friday night and Saturday. And whatever else I was doing, even if I had to work a bit of the Saturday as a freelancer, Friday night and Saturday would always be time when I was not working. And it didn't really matter what else I was doing. It wasn't that I felt like I had to do something really productive with that. I didn't think I had to go to an evening class or to, um, to play netball or anything like that. But that time was protected. It was non-work time. And I think it's it's really easy as a teacher, particularly when you're first starting out, to allow that to to take over every spare moment that you have. But it's it's not helpful to do that, and it's it's not reasonable to expect yourself to do that. So having some protected time, and again for me, it worked out better to be Friday night and Saturday. For others, it might be Sunday, so you can get your work done on a Saturday and have Sunday off and be prepared for the next week entirely um, uh, dependent on, on your own circumstances. But having that bit of protected time that is nothing to do with work is really important. And whatever my job has been, I've always tried to maintain that, even though at times it's been difficult, it's been something that I thought has been really important for my own well-being. Thank you so much, Kat. There's a wealth of uh, of, of really great um 
not just tips but just stuff to think about and chew over after this podcast episode I'm sure you've given our listeners loads to, to mull over now just a few more kind of practical um, and you know, specific recommendations you've got a website and you've got a Twitter account at Holocaust UK which is, is very active I note is there anything else you want to flag up to our listeners that might be on the horizon perhaps any online CPD or just anything to look out for Yeah, absolutely. So our website is www.het.org.uk. And yeah, we put announcements on Twitter and on our Facebook page about anything that's coming up. So we do have a variety of different courses happening. A lot of it at the moment is online. Um, We we do have penciled in our upcoming teacher courses, which are residential, but we're of course not certain which of those will be possible next year. So we have planned for them, we have penciled them in, but we'll we're hoping to run alternative online courses if we're not actually able to go to visit the places that we've suggested we will do later on in the year. And so, yeah, if you look on our website, on our Twitter feed or Facebook, you'll see all sorts of teacher training opportunities, which will allow you to meet us um, online or perhaps later on in the year, we'd hope um, physically in a variety of different spaces, um, not just in the UK, but overseas as well. Kat, it's been an absolute pleasure, um, as always, and I, I'm sure and I, and I hope that uh, you'll be back on site with us at some point in the next academic year. But, um, you know, if not, hopefully we'll, we'll get you online. <laughs> so um, <laughs> thank you for your time um, and thank you for everything that you've shared with our listeners. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast again somewhere down the line. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Keep in touch. Thank you, Kat. And we'll be back with our next episode in a fortnight. Uh, So we'll look forward to speaking to you then. But uh, for now, from a very locked down Wales uh, and a slightly less locked down Reading, uh, it's goodbye from us. That was Emma and Tom's PGCE podcast presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Katrina Kirkland from the Holocaust Educational Trust. You can find the Trust at het.org.uk and on Twitter at Holocaust UK. We'd like to thank Kat and all her colleagues for the thought-provoking and high-quality sessions with our students and would urge all colleagues to make use of the HET's generous offerings when producing something on the subject of the Holocaust. Kat's book recommendations were Holocaust Landscapes by Tim Cole and Invisible Women by Caroline Criado-Perez. Finally, our apologies for the quality of the line to Reading today. We hope it didn't get in the way of a really interesting discussion. We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, from a locked down podcast team, take care and enjoy teaching. <laughs>